This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs, featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. 1968 was a turbulent year both in the United States and the world. The Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the assassination of Martin Luther King, and the riots at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago all marked this year. It's been 50 years, and my guest today has curated an exhibit at the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History here on the UT campus, and is here to talk more about the events of 1968 and our memories of them. Ben Wright, welcome to the studio. Good morning. Uh, So what's special about 1968 in the historical imagination? I think we see a few things. Um, I think you see an absolute bombardment of the public sphere with information, uh, particularly visual information. You see photograph after photograph. Um, that So many that we now look at and think of as iconic uh, you know, images of Martin Luther King, uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, election photographs, photographs of Vietnam. So it's very well documented. Um, and at the time, that had sort of what the reporter Jules Whitcuffer talks about as being this just giant bombarding, uh, you know, the nerve endings of Americans being stretched beyond bearing, just as they're as um, they're just inundated with bad news. And if you look at the calendar of the year, month after month, it's um, something else happens. Things develop. Old stories uh, take a turn for the worse, that sort of thing. Um, but I think that experience as well, what, what makes it different, let's say from, um, you know, other important years in American history, bit the big ones, maybe 1776, 1917, 1941, 2001, is that you have this immense... Um, collective uh, documentation of it that's now available in archives, such as the Briscoe Centre. And it's such um, a detailed inventory of what happened and what people thought and how people reacted. And it's complemented by this visual record of it as well. And I think when you combine those things together in an exhibit or um, in a program, you, you just, um, you, you're just able to recreate a very rich um, uh, a reconstruction of what happened. Would it be fair to say, actually, that the fact that we have all this archival material played a role with 1968 and the fact that people felt as though they were constantly being inundated with bad news, the fact that this stuff was being reported widely, um, television news journalism was sort of a new kickoff thing that was going on that is uh, – there is some, a bit of a correlation between mass media – and that sort of feeling of gloom, we're talking about it now with the social media effect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and I think social media is a good uh, corollary to this because if you look at, say, 2016 as a year, which uh, uh, people, uh, regardless of whether they're on the right or the left, think of as quite a stressful year where quite a lot of things happened. If you look month by month, is it that, um, you know, significant of a year in American history uh, in terms of the month-by-month events on the ground. I would argue that the effect of social media is to magnify everything and to um, and, and to create not just an echo chamber, but just a, 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 um, just a, a, um, a, a reverberation that just makes everything seem much more cavernous than it is. And I think what people were um, experiencing in 1968 is similar. Um, 
but it's not like cameras had just been invented or or newspapers. Um, so I think I think the other side of that is is you've yes you've got perhaps a sort of critical mass of uh, of of media coverage that's now different that's now knows what it's doing as opposed to say the early nineteen sixties. Um, you know you've got. Uh, reporters running around Vietnam embedding themselves in units and reporting back on atrocities. That's that's new, right? But then you've also got just this um, unprecedented cascade of events. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, LBJ in March deciding not to run. It completely transforms the political landscape. Right. Um, you've got uh, Martin Luther King's assassination the following month. You've got Resurrection City the following month. Then you've got RFK's assassination. And we're not, um, you know, we're not in the summer yet. This is we're in June, uh, and, and um, you know then over the summer the Cold War kicks off um, in in the sense of um, you know the Prague Spring is violently ended with Soviet tanks. You've got things going on in Paris, uh, all across France, and in fact, in in, in marked contrast to uh, the students and um, protesters in Chicago, in France they're actually able to team up with the unions and really, you know, you know you've got strikes across the country. So you've got things going globally and i think there's a certain form sort of claustrophobia that 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 cascade of events creates but then it, it it's absolutely magnified by just how well and and efficiently things are being reported so walk us through the year where we're set the stage for us how does the year begin um What's different between 1968 and, and 1967? So I think the year begins as sort of business as usual. You know, politics is is partisan. Uh, Vietnam is um, is sort of in the back of everyone's mind. And then um, the sort of the first big event is uh, at the end of January, where the Tet Offensive, um, where uh, North Vietnamese forces uh, break um, the ceasefire and uh, with a surprise attack, and they draw the Americans into this rather bloody um battle that lasts for several months that eventually you know is sort of sort of scored as a as a tie um but it's uh, because again bringing how things are reported when you talk about the photographs of dick swanson his archives are at the center of the photographs of eddie adams his archive too we have that iconic image of the saigon execution Mm -hmm. um so these uh, these images uh, and their um, reports are how this is landing in the American dining room, right, on, on, on the kitchen table. And so it feels close um, and it's, um, it saps the energy of the American public that, that, um, yeah, the, that things are going south in Vietnam. Um, and I think from there, um, the, the next big thing that happens is in, is in March when um, LBJ decides not to run again. And again, this, this absolutely transforms the political landscape. Um, he's, um, uh, he's not certain to win the nomination in Chicago, but it's pretty hard to, to, to re, you know, remove an incumbent president from your nomination. So it's sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the um, other campaigns we have going on are sort of seen as as innovating, but not necessarily endangering him having a second term. This blows the field wide open, and um, and the person who benefits from this the most is Richard Nixon, who's running strong on the Republican side. Who does eventually actually win the election? Yeah, um, you know, a lot's been said and written about Richard Nixon's presidency and his personality. Uh, I think it says a lot about 1968 that his election is one of the most normal things that happens during the year. <laughs> Let me put it in another way. Um, 
Nixon has this strange um, um, allure of um, you know, he he seems a, a calming, almost hopeful um, candidate. You know, he uh, kicks off his campaign in September uh, with a motorcade through Chicago, uh, which is the you know, only days before been the subject of, you know, riots, protests, what what goes down as a police riot too. So you have this absolutely chaotic scene at the Democratic Convention. And then you have, you know, within weeks, Nixon uh, on a motorcade, uh, on a motorcade, pr- pr- um, surrounded with, with security, but, but relaxed, you know, standing up, waving, shaking people's hands. It's a, it's a, jarring contrast and it's a very uh, cleverly orchestrated one and and this is one of the things that Nixon really brings to the table in 1968 is is carefully orchestrated uh, campaigns that that breathe this air of reassurance control uh, and even hope right because a lot of the Vietnam war had been hung on LBJ and with the new offensive kicking off it really looked as though things were spiraling out of control in southeast asia i think i think that's definitely how it was experienced again in the american home uh, on on the kitchen table through the newspaper through the television that that things are spiraling out of control um uh, ironically one of the reasons for this is um is the fact that the Johnson administration were pretty um, journalists were allowed to embed with units. Um, they they were um, yeah. I, I'm not saying there weren't any restrictions at all, but um, I, th- I think a lot of modern reporters would be quite envious of the access that the journalists had uh, during the Johnson administration in Vietnam. And we think about these iconic reports that come out, Morley Safer reporting on the burning of, of villages. So we think of Walter Cronkite going to Vietnam, coming back and saying, look, guys, this isn't going to work out. So, um, you know, it's the First Amendment that sort of creates this environment of anxiety that really allows um, Nixon, you know, who famously calls the press the enemy, to really come in and say, I'm going to calm everything down. I'm going to quiet things down. You know, we, we think about Nixon and the silent majority, and I think that's an important um, phrase to sort of turn on its head is that that was the appeal of Nixon, that there was a majority out there that wanted some silence and that that was part of the political bill of goods that he was uh, selling. And, of course, the other thing the Johnson administration was known for was the Civil Rights Act, which had been passed the year before, um, and one of its main proponents was then assassinated the following month, Martin Luther King Jr. Another shocking moment in American history. Yes. um, It's interesting to look at the photographs of King's funeral and to um, to just be... um, reminded so sadly that this was a family man. This was someone who's 39 years old, mm-hmm. um, who um, left a wife and children. And there's a very, there's, a, there's, there's just a gigantic human element to the, the tragedy of this, which which is obvious, very obvious. But, you know, we often concentrate on the, the riots that ensue in Washington, D.C., caught by Dennis Brack, his archives at the center, amazing photographs of of um, looting and and um and just, you know, 
outright anger on the streets and we think of we think of the funeral processions and we think of um you know johnson declaring a day of mourning uh, and today when we think of king we think of the statues and we think of you know every boulevard in uh, every college town having a, an mlk boulevard and things like that but you really get at this moment that it's a very human moment it's a very tragic moment and and that is um I think that's symptomatic as well about just how this affected people. You know, the exhibit, it's called The Year the Dream Died. And it wasn't just a dream that died in 1968. People died too, you know. Right. You see that symbolized with the two assassinations, with um, with Martin Luther King and then with Robert Kennedy as well. That there, that there is something, you know, um, I, I'm trying not to say it in a way that belittles what their families went through and the fact that they were people, but they're also important symbols mm -hmm. in American discourse. You know, if you think of MLK symbolizing a sort of a racially just America that could happen, uh, if you think about Bobby Kennedy symbolizing, um, you know, the return of a liberal Kennedy president, a progressive America, um, that sort of post-World War II dream of, uh, of, of an America that leads itself and the world into um, into a progressive future. The, these um, assassinations are, have this symbolic meaning that I think really led to the anger and enemy that you then see in Chicago. Well, let's talk about Chicago for a moment because this is something that comes up a lot. It's sort of the epitome of the uh, major nominating conference gone wrong. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, we can sort of compare and contrast what happened in, in Chicago here with what then takes place in Paris. I think so. Um, and, you know, um, what's wonderful about that comparison between Paris and Chicago is that Robert Trout, a reporter for CBS, was in both at, at the time. So he's he's a foreign correspondent. Um, he's a legendary political reporter by the mid-1960s. And they bring him over to cover the conventions because um, he's covered everyone since the mid-1930s. Um, um, but he's based in Paris and Madrid. And he sort of does these fun little radio vignettes for CBS about you know, bullfighting and the trail of Hemingway and, the, um, you know, um, you know, people bowling in Paris and you know, all this fun stuff. And then he finds himself in the middle of the Paris riots. Um, and he talks in his reports about having to wear a handkerchief over your nose like you're a Western bandit, about how tear gas uh, uh, makes you have a good cry whether or not the cops were aiming at you or not and how it smells rather like juicy fruit gum and that you have to sort of smell your way home because you can sort of realize when you're about to enter a cloud of tear gas and so you have to go a different way. I mean, there was these wonderful sort of um, you know, almost funny um, eye-rolling reports at these silly French students. Um, and things do turn deadly in France. Um, uh, several students die. They're in pitched battles with the police throwing um, cobblestones at them. Um, but Trout, Trout's reports remain sort of... Sort of um, sardonic then he gets on a ship he's terrified of flying uh, so he gets on a ship and he um sails to, to america to new york and then from there to chicago where he covers uh first the republican co convention actually down in miami and then ends up in chicago for the democrat convention his tone completely changes um he becomes very serious very worried about what he's seeing he's worried about the gas masks and the police officers he's worried about the um 
the general climate of fear that seems different from France. There's a sort of a sinister aspect to this that that, that really quite scares him. It's not the America that he had left. Um, he talks about how the students in Paris knew what they didn't like more than what they did like. Um, uh, they didn't... They, they didn't have a lot of solutions, a lot of ideas for how things should move forward. Whereas the, the students in um, in Chicago were very clear about what they wanted. They wanted an end to the war in Vietnam. Uh, so those, um, so that was an interesting um, contrast. Uh, but I think the, I think the other thing that you see in Chicago is. Um, the proactivity of the police. I mean, this is later labelled as a police riot, where uh, the where the police just descend into violence with their clubs and uh, you know and really injure injure folks. What could possibly happen next that would add fuel to the fire that would that that would um, increase the claustrophobia and the reverberation of all the political intrigue? And um, well, what happens is 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 a um, is a um, path-breaking general election. One of those general elections that people look at and go, that's one of the really important elections. And it's a three-way contest. It's uh, Nixon uh, representing the Republicans. You've got Hubert Humphrey, vice president, who's um, who sort of dragged his way out of Chicago with the nomination. And then you've got George Wallace running as the third candidate. Right. And um, you've... At the same time this is going, this is going on in September. Uh, so, so you've got these three duking it out. Um, both Nixon and Humphrey are terrified of what Wallace may do to, um, to their um, prospects as a sort of third-party kingmaker. Um, Wallace does end up actually taking several southern states, but this is, this is seen as more of an issue for Humphrey uh, than, for, uh, than for Nixon. Um, but you've got other things going on too. You've got um, you've got um, the um, sentencing of Huey Newton in the Bay Area for, to manslaughter. You've got um, Eldridge Cleaver um, um, battling it out with the University of California Board of Regents um, about an appointment. Uh, interestingly, on the scene, sort of stage right. Um, here comes Ronald Reagan, who is the governor of California, who, who had a who who very nearly had an Obama-style run in the at the Republican convention, um, and you really see him him being born as the political creature that you that um, you then see in the nineteen eighties come mm. fully into fruition. Um, and um, you know, one of our uh, archives is of a documentarian called Paul Steckler, and he talks about. Wallace and Reagan and how Wallace is sort of acts as a way station for some of these guys that eventually um, migrate into you know from from uh, the solid South Democrat vote to the to the Reagan right and that um, you, you see Wallace is sort of a rough around the edges proto Reagan um, which is which is an interesting there's obviously lots of other things going on with Wallace but right. but he's a, he's an interesting guy to consider and then in october you've got the um the, the um black power salute at the mexican olympics which um you know again f creates one of the most iconic images of the year and in many ways it sort of demonstrates uh, a completely different approach to martin luther king who was nonviolent, um you know and but he was also assassinated violently and so this sort of symbolizes the rise of a different tactic. Uh, yes, the Black Panthers certainly had a different approach to um, to political change than Martin Luther King. Um, I think sometimes that is 
somewhat overplayed. We have uh, the archives uh, at the Briscoe Centre of Stephen Shames, who was the Black Panthers photographer, and he thinks there's been a bit too much made about um, the militancy of the Panthers. He um, he portrays them in his photographs, but also if you if you interview him as um, you know, their priority was protecting the black community, but they, they didn't want to do this at the exclusion of others, that they didn't swagger around thinking they were better. Uh, they had this, what he calls a religious commitment to public service. And that, you know, if you look at the images in his collection, I think you see that uh, more sort of just everyday mundane side of the Panthers and their community work almost. But yeah, I think at the same time, there are, um, it's something we should chew on, uh, you know, why we have Martin Luther King Boulevards, we don't have Malcolm X Avenue. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, are there any bright spots to 1968? <laughs> We've been talking an awful lot about uh, struggle and assassination and rioting and and and, and whatnot. So, um, something that we can remember fondly. Well, um, beginning on Christmas Eve, uh, 1968, uh, photographs and, and some very patchy video starts to get beamed back from Apollo 8, showing um, uh, American astronauts um, circumnavigating another world. That is the moon, and this is really, you know, this is the, this is the world's first selfie of itself, <laughs> um, and it is sort of this sort of weirdly, um, you know, if there's such a thing, hopeful existential moment where um, um, I think there's the um, Walter Cronkite said, um, what was it, you know, that blue disc of ours out there in space floating alone in the darkness how ridiculous it is that um we have difficulty getting along on this little lifeboat of ours you know it made a great impression on cronkite and i think cronkite made an impression on everyone else uh, and actually one of the um astronauts uh, frank berman is told later that that they got all these telegrams and thank you notes when they get home um and uh, one of them says you saved 1968 yeah. <laughs> so you, you so, so it ends on this sort of you know good note i mean it, and it, you know it's a great way to sort of it's what you want to happen before the credits start rolling right but i think there's something else that's interesting about this as a cultural moment as well because obviously six months later you've got um you've you've got neil armstrong walking on the moon but then uh you know the same year you've got david bowie's space oddity right you've also got um the growth of sci-fi you've got uh, 2001 a space odyssey you've got this kind of interesting intriguing thing going on where um parts of the culture are starting to look out you know to, to to find good news can we find good news outside and that's the ironic thing about um the moon um about apollo 8 um is that the, the only good news um happens off the planet <laughs> well um i mean given that we're in such a, a similar a cultural moment right now where we just feel like there's a lot of bad news and we're looking for something hopeful. Hopefully uh, that aspect of 1968 will also repeat itself uh, 50 yes. or 51 years later. No, I think I think um, what we need right now is a Mars landing and that will uh, that'll solve all our problems. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll look forward to that. Uh, well, thank you so much for being with us. This has been fascinating. Uh, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org.
You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive director is Joan Newberger, and our technical editors are Augusta Delomo and Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.